Hey folks, welcome to another edition of The Electables. This is Doug Thornell. Uh, I'm joined, uh, as always, by my producer, Michael Peliquin. Michael, how are you doing today, buddy? Doing good. How are you doing, Doug? Did you have a good weekend? Uh, you know, I did. It was, uh, it, this news cycle never ceases to amaze me. Um, you know, you go from a story about uh, intelligence picking up or finding out that uh, the Russians may have paid the Taliban to kill U.S. soldiers to the president uh, tweeting out yesterday uh, a video with uh, one of his supporters riding in a golf cart yelling white power. Um, and then now, obviously, the story, you know, the, the reemergence, if it ever went away, of uh, COVID-19 in this country, we're seeing huge spikes uh, nationally and also uh, in some hot spots in Arizona, uh, in Florida, and Texas, and elsewhere. So it's <laughs> it is a uh, it's it's this news cycle is crazy, and it it really um, you know I think it really illustrates the importance of electing competent uh, and diverse voices. Uh, to office. And uh, we're lucky to have with us today uh, Ashanti Golar, who is doing just that for the organization called Emerge. She's the president of, of, of Emerge. It's the only organization dedicated to recruiting and training Democratic women to run for office. Uh, she leads the organization and steers its overall strategy and direction, overseeing a national staff as well as affiliates across the country. Uh, Ashanti is a, a, a longtime respected and recognized political strategist uh, who, prior to taking over the presidency of Emerge, was the political director. Um, she, for 15 years, was a grassroots organizer and activist for women communities of color and progressive causes. Uh, she has uh, served uh, at the DNC as a senior aide over there. Uh, and also worked as a manager for the National Partnerships for United Way Worldwide uh, and was a political appointee for the Obama administration. Um, and right now she is, uh, you know, focused uh, on um, in, in increasing the number of uh, women in elected, of, elected office, not just, uh, not just in Congress and in the Senate, uh, but uh, uh, in, in local offices as well, which is critically important. Um, and specifically focused also on raising that number of uh, women of color who are uh, who are uh, recruited as candidates and supported uh, in their campaign. So Ashanti, welcome to the Electables. It's so fantastic to have you. Um, I really appreciate you finding time today to to join us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on. And I should say that. Um, uh, she has her own podcast as well. Um, do you want to tell us the name of the podcast? Yes, it's called The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics. We just wrapped up season three, and The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics is a platform that I created so that Black, Brown, and Indigenous women of color could find themselves in politics. There's still not a lot of us, and in particular, I wanted the young brown girls to be able to see people that look like them and know that we do exist and that there is space for them in politics. And I also wanted 
to make it easier for those brown girls of all ages, of all backgrounds, to know that there are different pathways to get involved in politics. So our website has resources. And on the podcast, we talk to women of color elected officials, activists, campaign staff. And right now we're doing some bonus episodes where we're highlighting the Black women who are leading the Black Lives Matters movement and everything that we're seeing today as we fight another racial pandemic in this country. That's fantastic. And, uh, and so I'm definitely. So sorry. No, my it's okay. Hey, it's the, or my phone. <laughs> it, uh, we're, you know, it's a pot. It's the, it's the world we live in as podcasters, right? Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, sorry about that. No, no problem. And if you hear a dog bark, that might be my dog, Chase, who's uh, right now being quiet. But like the minute <laughs> she hears any sort of disruption outside, she goes crazy. So, um, so I, let's just start. I mean, one of the things I like to do with uh, with with our guests, particularly someone like you, has who has been involved in the you know in politics for so long and at high level at a very high level. Um, tell our listeners how you got how you first got involved into politics. How was this sort of how did this profession, you know, um, how did you get drawn to this profession? <laughs> yes. So I never even knew that this profession for me, I didn't for me know that it was a possibility and opportunity. I always tell people the story from the beginning is we were home one day. I was watching television with my mom. She got up from the couch. So I do what young kids do. And I changed the channel to what I wanted to watch. And that's when I discovered C-SPAN. And I was just intrigued by all of these people who were fighting and arguing and yelling about the betterment of the country. And I was just captivated. But even at that young age and starting to watch C-SPAN, I realized I didn't see a lot of people that look like me. I didn't see a lot of women. I didn't see a lot of people of color. So I immediately just had the thought, well, these people are the exception. They're able to do it. I don't know if I'll be able to do it. And growing up in Las Vegas, Nevada, even at the time, there were not a lot of women of color who were elected officials. There frankly weren't a lot of women. But I knew I loved this thing called politics. So I just kept up to date on it, watching my C-SPAN. And when I was in high school, I did lots of volunteering. We had that great government teacher, Mrs. King, who was loved throughout our high school. And she was also very politically connected. And one year we had a very high profile Senate race and she knew both of the candidates that were running and she brought them in and we were able to ask them questions. So for the one candidate, I asked him about raising the minimum wage, why he supported it. It was a personal issue for me. I worked a part-time job to have extra money. I had lots of friends who work part-time jobs to have extra money to support their families. And obviously, I thought we should be making more money, but that people in general should be making a livable wage. And the candidate, he answered my question. He was very much for raising the minimum wage, and I appreciated that. His opponent came in and I asked him why he didn't vote to raise the minimum wage when he was in Congress. And he argued with me saying that he did. I told him that he didn't. And he kept <laughs> arguing with me. And I reminded him that there's this lovely thing called the Internet and I can actually check votes. And he did not vote to raise it. And he just kept telling me that I was wrong and he did support it. 
So after the class, Mrs. King called me over and I thought I was in trouble for arguing with an elected official. And she said that he had called her and he admitted that he was wrong. He did not vote to raise the minimum wage. And he was just mad that I had publicly called him out on it. And that just made me think, okay, did he lie to me because I was young, because I was a girl, because I couldn't vote? And all of those things were very true. But I knew despite being young and a girl not being able to vote, I was able to volunteer. So I volunteered for the other candidate with every free waking moment that I had. And that candidate won the Senate race by less than 500 votes. And that showed me the power that people had in politics. Even though I wasn't able to vote, I was able to help influence other people's vote. I was able to support a candidate that I believed in, but really a candidate who would make things better for me in my future. And that is when I absolutely just got fully hooked on politics. And I did a lot of young Democrats and college Democrats. Congresswoman Shelley Berkeley gave me my first job out of college as her field director. And for me, having that opportunity was really amazing because, again, I didn't know if I was able to have a profession when you don't see a lot of people who look like you in this space. And that put me on the trajectory that I'm on today. And it really does influence a lot of my work with getting more women of color in elected office with Emerge, but then also with the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. That was the catalyst for me creating this resource because I once was that young girl who looked around and didn't know she could have a profession in politics if this was a place for her. So being able to create that venue so other young girls don't feel as lonely and alone as I did when I was trying to figure out my political journey. Yeah, I, you know, I can relate to so much of that as a, you know, as a, a black man who was, you know, who first got his start in politics in Iowa. Um, I'm not from Iowa, but I ended up going out to Iowa and working on the Iowa caucuses in 2000. And, um, and, uh, for, for Al Gore. And, and I just remember, you know, just, uh, as, as great as the campaign was, you know, there were just very few, there were very few people of color on the campaign. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, as I've been going through my political career, you know, those numbers have slightly increased. I think at the junior and mid levels, you're seeing more and more, uh, black faces, people of color, indigenous staffers. But, uh, you know, to me, I think the place where uh, the progressive side of the aisle needs to really do just a much better job is at those senior level positions uh, at, in the committees, as campaign managers, um, and also in the consulting world where, you know, so okay. much, as you know, so much million, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars are going to be spent this cycle. And um, what percentage of that is going to be spent on either minority owned firms or at firms that have, you know, a, a black partner, you know, and I think that is an area where we need to, um, you know, the party just needs to do a better job. Uh, the progressive side needs to do a better job of, of, of taking people like Ashanti or Doug Thornell or whoever it may be um, and putting them on a trajectory where they can be at the table, making spending decisions, um, making hiring decisions, strategic decisions, because there's just not enough of us uh, around that table. And I don't believe it's because um, there isn't a pipeline. I believe that most of the people in positions of power 
who are um, able to hire just sometimes don't know how to find that pipeline. Um, and okay. so, so anyway, that, that, you know, I, um, I don't know what you're, what you think about if that's something that you're, what you think about that, but, um, that, that is sort of, you know, for me, one of the, you know, particularly also with the, you know, the, the high level, the, the senior level staffers in the Senate, um, you know, just doing a much better job of having, you know, in democratic offices, chiefs of staff, legislative directors, communications directors who are people of color. And right now that number is just very small. So small and just 100% to everything that you said. And I think this is a good time to shout out the organization Inclusive, which really focuses on getting young people of color jobs in politics to help continue to make sure that there are more of us. But even during this time, I still feel that we have, I'm not going to take that back. We have a lot of people still have the notion that people of color in campaign positions can only speak to people of color, which is why you always see us siloed doing either the engagement to our community, the press to our community. We're still not seen as being able to be the overall director of community engagement, to be in charge of fundraising, to be the campaign manager, is why during the primary cycle, I was always sharing articles of women of color, especially who were in these roles as the political director, as the campaign manager, because it was still so rare to see that. And I really appreciate so many of the presidential candidates who hired women of color in those roles so that we can see this be something that happens in future presidential campaigns. Because I know, like you hear this too, like all the time, it's, oh, it's just so hard to find the qualified people and they just aren't there, which is one of the most insulting things that I hear all the time in politics is the fact that we are there, we just aren't given those opportunities. And that's on campaigns, that's in the political committees, and it's especially true on Capitol Hill. The fact is we do have these skills, we do have the knowledge, we are still just not seen as people who are able to do these roles. And it's something that even ties into what we see when people of color want to run for office, is that people only think that people of color can represent other people of color, that they're not capable of talking to people that look like them. And on both sides, it's just this old antiquated idea that we need to get rid of because we can have people of color running and winning in any district as has been proven. And we can have people of color in these senior roles in politics because we very much are capable of doing these jobs. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, Emerge, you're the president of Emerge. Um, tell us about their mission. You know, give us a, a, a bit of sort of what the what 2020 looks like for Emerge. What are you guys focusing on? And and um, uh, you know, where where are those opportunities to elect more um, uh, women candidates and women of color candidates? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I took over as the president of Emerge in February of this year, but I've been a part of the network since 2006 as a co-founder of Emerge Nevada. But we started in 2002 with Emerge California and we had Emerge America established in 2005 to replicate our program because it was so successful. And at the end of the day, what we do is all of the fabulous team members in this network of 27 states wake up and we recruit and train Democratic women to run for office. We demystify the training process and the running for office process through our 70-hour signature program. And we take up to 25 women in the program and they get all the tools and the resources that they need to run. We've trained over 4,000 women to run for office. We currently have almost 800 who are serving in elected office. And this year we have 715 of our alums currently who are running. So we are really excited. You'll hear people say all the time that, oh, all of these women women running for office, it's a wave. But the fact is, I disagree with that. This isn't a wave. This is a movement. We've been doing this work for 15 years. And if you want to change policy in this country, you have to change the policy makers. And that means that we need to have more women and women of color in these positions. There's 520,000 elected offices in this country. About 75% of them are occupied by men, with the majority of them being white men. Women are 50, 51% of the population. I at least think that we should have at least 50% of those offices. A lot of people just want to go for parity, which would get us 50% men. And that, and that, and that, and that's what we're working to do is to really make sure that the people who are making the decisions across this country for everyday Americans look like everyday Americans. And we're proud of what we continue to do to make sure that these voices are there, but they're also amplified. You know, 2020, obviously, for us and for the majority of the people in this country did not pan out so far as we thought it would. The pandemic actually hit when I took over leading the organization. And we are an organization that prides ourselves on our in-person training. And with the pandemic, we immediately saw that taken away from us overnight. So we had to pivot to doing our trainings online. But it wasn't even just doing the training online. It was the fact that campaigning now is just completely and totally different. You can no longer run a traditional field program, especially when the pandemic hit and everyone was sheltering in place. Fundraising was different. Communications was is different. So what we did was create our Campaigning Through Crisis series where we supported all of the alums in our network who are going to be running with shifting their campaign campaigns during the pandemic. One of the things that we always make sure that we do is provide that continuing network, that continuing education for our alums. And this is something that we knew we absolutely needed to do. And we had hundreds of our alums attend that webinar series. And we got to see how effective it was with the Wisconsin elections. We know that we didn't know until election eve that they were actually going to go through with actually having in-person elections. We have 59 of our alums who are on the ballot and 50 of them won their races despite everything. And that's because we were able to help them pivot their campaigns. And throughout the 
primaries that have occurred over the past few weeks. We've seen great wins in Oregon, New Mexico, Nevada, Pennsylvania. So despite everything that's happening, we are still seeing our alums running and winning. And it's extremely important during this time that we do have their voices. When the pandemic hit, we definitely knew that we could not trust what was happening you know, from the highest office in this country, that we weren't going to be able to get the leadership that we need. And what we saw at Emerge is our women alums, especially our local leaders, they were the ones who were actually giving people the leadership that they needed and deserved. Mayor London Breed in San Francisco, the first black woman mayor there. She was the first mayor of a major city to institute shelter in place. She got ridiculed. A lot of people told her that she was overreacting, something that we hear a lot when women are in elected leadership position or any leadership position. But we knew San Francisco became one of the first cities to flatten the curve. When we knew that students weren't going to be able to go to school, that brought to light the fact that we know for a lot of kids in this country, school is the place where they get their meals. So our alum, Danica Rome, the first open transgender state legislator in the country, got together with our other Emerge alum, Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, and they fought the USDA to make it so that parents could pick up lunches for their kids at any school and that you didn't need to have the students with you, which is something that they were requiring in the beginning which made no sense. You're telling people to shelter in place, but then you're going to make entire families have to drive to go and get a meal for their kids. And then also with us saying, okay, everyone's shelter in place. Home is the safest place for you to be. We knew that for victims of domestic violence, home actually wasn't safe. So our alum, Rachel Rollins, who is the first black woman DA in Suffolk County in Boston, rang the alarm bell that we needed to make sure that we were providing services for victims of domestic violence, that they not only needed to stay sustained, but they needed to be increased. And we saw other DAs following her lead to make sure that this pandemic wasn't creating another pandemic where we saw a huge increase in domestic violence incidents. Even though we have, it's still great to know that the services are there for those women and those families that need it. So for us, definitely didn't plan on the pandemic, but it has highlighted the need for why we do need women in leadership positions and what happens when you have women in leadership positions because they are bringing in that different perspective, especially when you have women from all walks of life. So for us, it's going to be continuing to keep the momentum going, especially now because we see more women want to run for office because of everything that has happened over the past few months with the pandemic, but also over the past few weeks with the racial pandemic that we're seeing, a lot of people are just very upset, tired, horrified, and how a lot of their local elected officials have responded to the situation and they want to step up and run. So I know that we're going to continue to be very busy in 2020 and beyond because more women are stepping up and wanting to lead and own the power that we do have as women, as Americans in this country, to set the policies that are governing our lives. 
Take us through the recruitment process. Um, I've worked at the DCCC. I've worked at the DSCC. And, you know, recruiting is a big component of what those committees do. Um, but, you know, you're sort of kind of like a baseball scout, right? In some ways, you're looking, you're going out there, you're trying to find um, the right candidate who uh, can appeal to the broadest audience, you know, someone who can fundraise well, someone who can be uh, exciting to uh, to voters, someone who can you know, has a, you know, who can put together a good campaign. There are a lot of things that go into what you factor in, in terms of recruiting. I just wanted to, since you guys do do that, um, I, I wanted to get your, your take on the candidate recruitment process. How do you go about it? What are the things you look for in a candidate to run for office? Yeah. And all the things that you mentioned, those are things that people can be taught. I was talking to someone the other day and they were asking about Congress and how do we get Congress more diversified. And I let them know that normally the recruitment process for when a seat opens up or they're looking to have someone primary someone is to look at who is around them, to look at their circle. And the most of the time, those people who are making those decisions are white men. So they're only looking to other white men to hold the position or they have a very white circle. So their circle doesn't have those diverse faces that we see now in Congress, particularly with women of color. So what we do at Emerge is we don't buy into the belief that you already have to have the name recognition, that you have to be able to self-fund, that you have to come to the table with all of these skills in order to be the best elected official that we are, that you, blah, blah, to be the best elected official that you can be. For us, we know that it's looking at the women who are leading the PTA, that they should be running for school board. It's looking at the women who are constantly volunteering for all of the other candidates and running their campaigns, that they should be the ones putting their name on the ballot. That it's the women who constantly attend every single city council meeting and know the issues like the back of their hand, that they should be the ones who are moved to the dais. It's about us looking to those everyday people who should be at the decision-making table, in addition to those women who do stand up and self-select, as we like to say, that they want to run for office and they want to make a difference. The reason why we do our affiliate structure is that it allows us to have a staff person and a team on the ground 365 days a year doing this recruiting. So looking for those women who may not see it in themselves that they need to run for office, but then us also being there for those women who do know that they want to run and want to have training. And our best recruiters actually are our alums who have gone through our program. They tell people how great the program is, how much they learn, how Emerge helped them win their race, and other women want that as well. We have to remember that everyone always starts somewhere. When I'm out doing speaking engagements, I tell people that Nancy Pelosi just didn't wake up one day and was Nancy Pelosi. It was over a period of time that she got to be this amazing speaker of the house. For our alum, Deb Holland, one of the first indigenous women in Congress, so great that she's also able to serve with Sharice David, so she's not alone. 
She also woke up one day and said, I want to run for office. I want to get some training. So for all of our alums who are now in elected office, they really stepped into an Emerge program one day, sat down at a desk with other women and learned about running for office. So these are all things that we can teach women. You don't have to be that full package and ready to go. I think that is a total myth that is put on people and society that you have to be all of these things in order to run for office. And it's part of the reason why we see so many everyday people not wanting to run for office is because They feel that, well, I have to have this background. I have to have this education. I have to have this sort of family. I have to make this much money that you have to have it all together before you run. And that isn't true at all. So for our recruitment process, it is looking to those women who need to be serving that other people aren't looking at and they are now in elected office they're doing great things for their community and they're inspiring the next generation of women who want to run for office us are always on local that local that local that local that local level level and getting those people who need to be serving in those positions to serve take me through a hypothetical situation where let's say you're, you're you've got your eyes on a congressional district or a, even a state rep district state senate district and you're recruiting uh candidates is it your approach to recruit as many talented women to run in that district or do you want to recruit one person and back them <laughs> Yeah, so we get this question a lot, and we have had lots of alums who have run for the same position. I always say they're running for the same position and not against each other. And the fact is, there's nothing wrong with that. When there's multiple men running in a primary, people never say anything at all. It's fine. But whenever it comes to women, it's always, well, there's too many women. There should just be one woman, which again, just goes to the sexism and the misogyny that exists in politics. That's what we want. We want multiple women running for a seat. That is what we want to make the norm. The fact that there are so many great qualified women running that you're giving the voters in the district so many choices that they would be happy with any of the women if they were lucky to get the vote. So for us, it is not a bad thing when we have lots of women running across the country, even if they are running for multiple positions. This is what we should be seeing. This is something that we want to normalize at Emerge. And what we've seen with our alums is even if they don't win that seat, they're happy for their Emerge sister who does win it because that means that we're one step closer to having a woman in that seat. So the more women we have running, the better. It does not in any way take anything away from any of the other women from the campaigning process for our democracy if it's fine to have a whole bunch of men running then it's also fine to have a whole bunch of women running absolutely and you know i i think that and that's the way you increase the odds right i mean if you if you're in a race and you've and you can recruit two or three or four or five or whatever the number is of women who are um you know who can run good races um that's what you want, right? Because then your odds are, you increase the odds rather than just sort of relying on just one person, you know, um, which I think we're sort of moving away from, you know, we're seeing a little bit improvement, particularly in the presidential race this cycle. You know, you saw 
um, you know, it, it, I, you know, four top tier um, women uh, running uh, for office. I may be uh, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Klobuchar. Um, who am I missing? Gillibrand. Uh, Gillibrand. You had so there were, you know, there were. I I think compared to it was probably the most number in years past, and you know, it was that that sort of I think where you want to. You know where the party, particularly on the progressive side, needs to move. So it's not as, it's not so. It's it's not a you know a you you know a unique thing to have three black men or three black women or three Asian women running. You know that starts to become, as you said, the norm, um, because the norm has always been that it's basically a, a whole bunch of white men running, and then maybe you've got one African American candidate, one African American woman candidate, or a woman candidate running, and. And, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, you just if we're going to increase the odds of include of, of, of victory and getting more representation, it makes sense to have to recruit as many people into these races as you can. Yeah, absolutely. And when we're talking about women, when women run for office, they win at equal rates as men. We just don't have that many women running. So it's important for us to make sure that at every level, the state level, the local level, the congressional level, that we have lots of women stepping up. And it also plays into the fact that when it comes to people of color, women, for whatever reason, they think that we're a monolith, which is part of why they feel that there shouldn't be multiple candidates, that all women think the same, that all people of color think the same. And that's not true at all. And we saw that during the primary season where the women candidates, they had different thoughts and views on things. The people of color candidates, they also had different thoughts and views on things. It, again, just goes to the mindset that I was talking about earlier that for whatever reason, when it comes to people of color and women, we are all the same and we're not. So that's something else that we need to talk about more as to why it's important to have more voices from women and people of color in races. It's because our communities are not a monolith and we want choice as well. If we can have so many choices of white men, then we should also have multiple choices of women and candidates of color. Exactly. Um, I want to ask you about the term that we use, that we heard a lot in the 2020 primary, and we hear it, you know, we heard it in 2016, we've heard it, you know, it's sort of a regular, you know, it's a term that sort of exists in politics. I think it exists even more when there are women candidates running, uh, but the term electability. And, mm-hmm. you know, how do you, you know, it, it's a, it's such a vague and, you know, sometimes amorphous term, but how do you, how do you define electability. So I tell people all the time, even though we do have to use these words, when we're saying in general, electability, viability, we are talking about a straight white male candidate, because that is what we are used to seeing in this country. As I mentioned earlier, it is still the majority of elected offices. And that's what people will default to. So we have to start thinking about, okay, when we're saying, is she electable? Is she viable? What does that really mean? And 
underneath that is saying, well, would white people vote for them? Will white people be able to relate to them? Will they be able to represent white people? So at the end of the day, when you even look at the past election cycles, there were so many candidates who got into primaries. They were not the favorite candidate, but they were able to beat the candidate that was favored. And guess what? That made them electable. That made them viable. When it comes to these terms, it's really down now, in my opinion, to the fact that the people in the districts are determining who's electable and who is viable, who they want to have represent them. That's your electability. That is your viability. And even when our alums come to me and tell me that, you know, someone says that they can't win, they need to rate their turn, they're not the right candidate for the district. I let them know that that person may not vote for them and feel that way, but there are other people who will vote for them and don't feel that way. So as long as you are able to run a great campaign and connect, that increases your viability, that increases your chances of electability. And if you are able to just really hone your campaign, your skills, what you want to do into an effective message and effective ground game, that is how candidates are winning. We're no longer in this era where it's okay, you are anointed by the political committee or you are anointed by this elected official in the city and you get it. People are jumping in, they're running races, and the voters are paying attention to who is representing them. So overall, electability and viability, it's really coming down to the voters. They are telling us who is electable and who is viable. How do you go about, how does Emerge go about supporting, specifically supporting the candidates that you back? Like just sort of, you know, from, you know, just sort of like a resource standpoint, you know, um, what, what, how do you sort of put your, you know, muscle behind those, those candidates? So for us, we don't do any recruitment. I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. My phone (laughs) keeps going off. (laughs) So for us, we focus on the recruitment and the training. We don't do any endorsing and funding. So part of how we support our candidates is connecting them to our great network of partners who do do that work. So they have their Emerge network, but we're able to let them know Here are the organizations that are playing in the state that would be interested in your race. Here is the organization that is doing investment in women of color candidates. Here's the organization that really wants to support candidates who care about criminal justice reform, which is a key part of your platform. That's something that we're able to do for our alums that gives them a lot of support in addition to just being there and having someone outside of your campaign that you can talk to. We are able to help them from the day that they decide to run with, okay, let's pull the numbers for your district. This is how you need to file. Here's some people that you can reach out to who could be great campaign treasurers. These are good parts of town to, you know, have your field office in because you can reach so many different parts of your district. We're able to provide the support in that way, but then also the support when you just 
have a bad day and need someone to talk to, you're able to talk to someone in the Emerge network. If you just have a simple question that you may not want to ask your campaign manager because you may think it's like a little silly or if you're having a fight with your campaign manager and you just want an opinion on something, you're able to call someone in the Emerge network. So for us, support looks like so many things and Typically for people, it is, okay, they're just really investing a ton of money in this person so they can win the race, but we know that candidates need support on so many levels, and we're able to provide that, which is something I really love about our network. You, uh, Emerge had a a, 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 a great year in 2018 in terms of electing, um, helping to elect um, both women and women of color to um, to offices uh, across the country. Um, how important was you know? I, 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 take me back to you know that that night and how and t- talk me walk me through sort of your emotions, especially seeing some of the victories that we had. People like Lucy McBath and Lauren Underwood. Um, what did that mean to you? And 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 what does it tell you about um, you know twenty twenty and beyond? Yes. So you mentioned Lucy. That one is very personal to me. Nope. I sat down with her in 2017 when she was just planning to run for state house in Georgia, encouraging her to run, letting her know we would love to get her into an immersed training program. And I got a call from her in 2019 saying that she had been really thinking about it, praying about it. And her heart was to run for Congress because that's where she felt she could really make change and make it so that no other mother had to experience what she had to experience with Jordan. And I remember that phone call so clearly and us just going through the fact that she would be getting in late. She would most likely have a runoff, but having a hundred percent faith that she could win that race and seeing her win it really meant everything to me. And that goes back to our conversation that we had before about electability and viability and people saying that she could not win in that district and she did. So to see Lucy win is a perfect example of how those who are closest to the pain should be closest to the power. And I love everything that she has been able to do, especially around gun violence prevention, because when she worked with Moms Demand, she would lobby so many members of Congress who told her that there wasn't anything that they could do. And now she's leading that committee and getting things done to see Lauren Underwood, a young black woman that is so powerful, especially how she's been focusing on healthcare is the fact that we do need more people medical backgrounds in Congress for her to be a nurse. There's our one of our alums as well, Dr. Kim Schreier, Congresswoman in Washington. She's currently the only woman physician in the House. And when you think about how much Congress loves to de- debate women's health care, it's the fact that there's only one woman doctor who actually knows what's happening. To see Ayanna Presley continue to be a trailblazer, to see, I mentioned them before, Deb Holland and Sharice Davids, it meant so much to me to see all of these women being elected to Congress, but 
for them to show up as their authentic selves. And that is something that we saw so much in 2018 is that these women did not change who they were to fit the status quo. They ran unapologetically as themselves and to see them showing up in Congress unapologetically as themselves. I love it. Uh, with Congresswoman Presley, you know, she's dealing with her hair loss issues, but when she showed up with her Senegalese twist, I'm someone who wears my hair in the same hairstyle. So it meant a lot to me to know that there was a woman of Congress who wears her hair the same way as me. And now to see how she is even inspiring young people, all people who have the same hair condition that she has, she still owned it and said, this is who I am. This is my story to see how Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez uses social media to message and bring in young people who thought that politics weren't for them. I loved when Ilhan Omar, Omar rocked black nail polish on the house floor. It really is showing people, especially women who aspire to be elected officials, that you don't have to change who you are in order to get into these positions. And I think that is going to have such a strong impact. And I see that already in 2020 with so many of the young women who have stepped up to run. They talk about how the squad inspires them all the time, how they're rocking their leather jackets and their heels just like the women who are in Congress, because now you can wear that and you are dressed like a woman in Congress. Congress. And I think we're going to continue to see this for years to come that we're going to have more and more of these women, especially young women who are stepping up into their power to run for office, to win these seats and be the voices that we need in Congress, making really, really fabulous decisions that are going to put our country on a really great course. Yeah, and I, I think I, I think that all of that is spot on, and I, I, I think that um, the other you know the the other thing that I think was so encouraging about 2018 is it demonstrated that uh, women candidates, women of color candidates in particular, could win in all regions of the country. You know, you had we had women candidates win in Iowa. We had we had Sharice Davids in Kansas. You know, you mentioned Lauren Underwood in Illinois. You mentioned Lucy McBath in Georgia. You know, Nevada, you know, you've got, um, you know, you've got Ilhan, Ilhan Omar in Minnesota. So it, it was, you know, it was a regional. That type of regional diversity uh, is so important. And I think demonstrates, you know, one of the key points that you're making is that, you know, women candidates, you know, can compete and can win anywhere. And uh, pigeonholing them or the knee jerk reaction to just say, well, you know, we need to go with this guy um, was was disproven to a great deal uh, in terms of the victories we saw in 2018. So that was one of the, that was for me another huge takeaway. It was just sort of how strong we we did all over the country. Mm hmm. Yes, it it was so fabulous. And I'm looking forward to seeing what great wins we're going to have this November. Okay. Um, Ashanti Golar, thank you so much for jumping on the electables. Uh, really appreciate it. Any plugs you want to make to, uh, for, uh, 
your website or your Twitter handle? Um, where can people find out more about Emerge? Yes, absolutely. Our website is EmergeAmerica.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and now our YouTube at Emerge America. And to all of the women out there who are listening, run for office. And to the guys out there that are listening, ask the great women in your life to run for office. And we've got the Brown Girls Guide to Politics podcast, which uh, everyone should listen to. I assume they can access that uh, on all major podcast platforms. Yep. You can listen to it wherever you get your pods. Fantastic. Fantastic. Ashanti, thanks so much for coming on The Electables. We've got to have you back, hopefully, before the election, see how things are going with, your, with our candidates. Um, but I really appreciate it. Oh, I would love that. And thank you so much for having me. This is Doug Thornell. And this has been another edition of The Electables. As always, if you're interested in starting your own podcast or video series, uh, check in with uh, my producing team from Airs Next. Uh, Michael Peliquin and Kenny Day are some of the best producers in the business, and they'll help you get your podcast up and running and, uh, and, and help you get it up on the right platforms. Uh, so if you need to find them, you can find them at michael at airsnext.com. Uh, uh, and tell them Doug Thornell sent you. Maybe they'll give you a, a little discount. <laughs> okay, folks. Till next time, this is Doug Thornell.